I've been feeling vibes all day. I've been feeling vibes all night. Let me breathe and meditate. Elevators, that all right? It's energy. Vibes, 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 energy. Vibes, 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 energy. Vibes, 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 energy. Try to reach everybody, but I can't reach everybody. I may not be Hey, what's going on, good people? It's your girl T Hardaway. And it's Michael Basil. And together we have the Did It for the Hood podcast. Indeed. We're back again with a, another wonderful interview. Um, you know, I don't do the resumes, I don't run down resumes because people have too many accolades and they get mad when you mess them up. So I'm just going to say her name is Storm Gray. And Storm Gray has done a lot of different things in the area of philanthropy, but she's going to run down her own resume and tell her own story. But uh, one of the reasons why we invited Storm on is because um, philanthropy is not something that is very commonly spoken about, specifically uh, in my minority households. You may hear what philanthropy is, you know, it's about money, but you don't really have an in-depth understanding and um, you don't see a lot of black and brown people running around. So uh, mm. Storm, thank you so much for coming on with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for the conversation today and looking forward to what we finna talk about. Indeed. Uh, so tell us your story. Okay. Uh, well, I'll start with uh, Storm Gray, pronouns she, they. Um, I am the executive director of an organization called Emerging Practitioners in Philanthropy. We call it EFIP for short, because it's way too long to say. Um, and basically, it is a membership association. We focus on leadership and professional development for those who are new to philanthropy that want to learn how to do philanthropy in a way that advances social justice. So we try to, you know, get folks who, you know, it may be their first job straight out of college, or maybe they worked in a different sector and decided they wanted to transition into philanthropy, which is usually the case for a lot of folks. Um, because most folks don't know that philanthropy is a actual field of practice. Mm. Uh, so we try to be like the first home for those folks, helping them get connected to one another, helping them to learn the landscape of philanthropy and helping them to figure out how to advance justice from wherever they are positioned within their organization. Like I'm a big believer that everyone has power the title is a title. The title does not make you powerful. You yourself are powerful. And so like, as we are trying to like educate and, you know, provide spaces for our members, we really challenge them to leave from where you sit, regardless of your positionality, you still have an opportunity to make a choice for equity, a choice for justice when mm -hmm. it comes to like philanthropic practice. So that's a little bit about, you know, the organization and what I do. Um, I came into philanthropy straight out of college, which is rare. Um, honestly, I was looking for a nonprofit job. I was in college. I went in as a graphic design major. No, actually, I went in as a business major. I went in as an international business major. Got to econ. I was like, oh, this ain't it. Mm -mm, we can't do this. So I went to the career counselor and um, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do now. I'm on a full scholarship. I don't want to waste that. What can I study? And she asked me what I like to do. This was the time of like... God, I'm dating myself. MySpace and like Black Planet and all that type of stuff. So I was like, well, I like to do like web pages. Is that like a, is there a major for that? And then she directed me towards graphic design only to figure out in my senior year, I didn't want to go into graphic design as a field. So I was like, okay, so what am I going to do after I graduate? Um, but I've been volunteering. Volunteerism had been like a major part of um, you know, our household values growing up, like always believed in giving back. 
returning someplace better than how you found it. Um, and so at the time I was volunteering at a shelter for um, homeless children. So we were doing like an after school program. And I remember asking one of the case managers, like, how do you, how do I get to do what you're doing? Cause what you're doing is valuable. Like what you're doing is worth something. And she was like, oh, go to idealist.com. And so I did apply for a job. It just so happened that the job that I got was a foundation, was at a foundation. So I, my first job was as an admin assistant at a local family foundation in the DC area that also had like some international work too. And that's where I learned philanthropy, like literally first job out of college. And it was, um, by the time I got to my second job where it was more uh, locally focused and I saw that they were giving money to after school programs, education, uh, youth development. I was like, oh, these are the kids that look like me from my hood when I was growing up and y'all are giving them money. And I see that, you know, sometimes the people that are in those decision-making spaces don't really understand the value of the dollars being given or don't really, you know, can't really translate what's written on paper to what it actually means in real life and how that's valuable. And I saw a, a place for myself there in terms of like, oh, I can make a difference here because I get it. They may not get it, but I get it. And I can be like a translator of sorts. And so it was actually at my second job, um, that I decided like, oh, I want to stay in philanthropy. I want to like do this grant making thing and figure it out. And so I went from job to job and went from foundation to something called philanthropic support organizations. It's a, a mm -hmm. basically um, an association. So we help those who work in foundations do what they do better. And some PSOs are... Uh, like whistleblowers, like they challenge and critique the sector to make sure that everybody is on their P's and Q's. There are other organizations that focus on like a particular job. So if you're a, you know, if you hold a finance role in philanthropy, like there are PSOs that speak to that. There's PSOs that are regionally focused. So um, like I live in the DC area. So there's a Washington Regional Association of Grant Makers that helps the foundations that are based in the DC metropolitan region. And then you have national PSOs, like the one that I lead. And we really look at supporting the individual across the country that work in foundations. So it's its own like ecosystem, right? And so as I got deeper into um, my work in philanthropy and started working at PSOs, I saw that there was a whole national conversation happening. So it wasn't just the local folks that were talking about how to give grants better, how to be in better partnership with grantee partners, how to be in better relationship with communities. It was a whole national conversation. And that's where I realized like, oh, that's where I want to be. Like, I want to, you know, learn from what's happening in another state, another country or um, another re region and help the sector be better so that the money that gets out, gets out quicker, better, you know, more fluidly or that folks are realizing their inherent power, right? Within a really privileged sector. Philanthropy is a very privileged sector, you know? And I think sometimes we forget that. Um, but, you know, for me, it's been my, I guess, desire to make sure that we're using that privilege well, and we're using that privilege in a way where it's not doing additional harm and it's not extractive. And I like to tell people candidly, like working in philanthropy is my form of like trying to advance reparations. like. Because the money that the sector has amassed, for the most part, has been stolen and extracted from communities of color, Black and Brown communities. And so, like, I 
in my own way, I'm like, well, we need to give that back. And that needs to get back to the people. And it needs to get back to the people in ways that the people have decided that they actually want to receive it. And so I'm not like on the ground, nonprofit, like, you know, in the streets, but like, I'm, I'm a little bit more removed, but I'm really looking at the practice of philanthropy and helping to support those leaders coming in who want to do something different. I'm going to let that breathe because you said, yeah, I'm going to let that breathe. Because if you tell me, I, I go, you know, yeah, but yeah. yes, we're going we're gonna to circle back to several points that you hit because okay. you, you gave us a very high level overview of it, but it's, it's, I can't say it's true or not because I don't work in that industry. So that's why we brought you on here to be the expert. It's amazing though. Yeah, yeah it is. It's yeah. amazing work. But but that was one of the reasons why I wanted to have her on. Um, because she's the first black person, she's the first person period that I have ever met up her close that was in philanthropy. And I'm mm. like, philanthropy. Okay, I know people give money, but uh yeah, I know the formalization of giving, I get it, but mm -hmm. I had never met anyone up close that did it. And so I figured it'd be an interesting conversation. Um where are you from originally? So originally from Camden, New Jersey. Shout out to my Jersey folks. All right. South Jersey girl. Mm -hmm. um, but based in the D.C. area now. Um, but Camden is home. Camden, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. is, is Camden going through a lot of gentrification right now? Uh, No, not very much. Not um, yet. It's, it's been a while since I've been home. I like to say that Camden is one of those forgotten cities. Mm -hmm. Because we live in the shadow of Philadelphia. Gotcha. Which is right across the bridge. Um, Camden, I would say at its peak was like a, it was a really nice city. Like, you know, had, um, I don't know if y'all remember RCA records. Yeah. Had its home in Camden, Campbell soup mm. still has its headquarters in Camden. Come on. Don't play us. Right. I need some soup. Can you say some soup? I can't say you know some soup. <laughs> then it can go. <laughs> but I see what you can do. But yeah, like, you know, Camden, um, and I don't know like the full history of the story, but like the the city changed over the years. So by the time I was born, like Camden's a rough place. Mm -hmm. Um, so gentrified, mm, not nah. so much. Okay, nah. But you it know. was just a question, just a question. I know all these major cities are going through the the changes, right? Yeah. Um, specifically, if it was a highly populated with minorities, so all of that's happening. Yeah. Um. So, what made you know that you wanted to continue in philanthropy? Because, I mean, you said you have mm -hmm. wanted to advance these different conversations, but at any point in time, you could have, because you're getting exposed to these different spaces. At any time, you could have pivoted out of your industry and gone to something else. But why did you stick on that path? Well, because, you know, when I was, gosh, in high school, maybe, um, when I was in high school and definitely when I was in college, I made this promise as long as I was doing what I felt like was within my purpose, any and everything that I needed would be added onto me. So it's not mm. my business. It's not my job to worry about, you know, if I'm making enough money, if I have all the right things, like I believe very deeply, if I was doing what I was made to do, I would have everything else that I needed. Challenge was, I know what I was supposed to be doing. <laughs> all I knew was that I was meant to help people. And I remember I was in college talking to one of my homeboys and I was like, so I don't know what I'm gonna do when I graduate. Is there a career for helping people? Cause that's what I need to be doing. I wanna do that. But you know, the universe always makes a way because sure. that's essentially what I've ended up doing 
in every aspect of my work. It's always been focused on people. It's always been focused on helping others. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think what made me decide to keep philanthropy as my, my, my career choice. And I think there were a couple of moments of choosing, right? So that Mm -hmm. second job after uh, my second job at a foundation was when I saw like the power of philanthropy and how I fit, right? I'm in predominantly white spaces with people that have access to great deals of money, right? And they're making some very important decisions about which community-based organizations get those funds. I'm going to these sites and doing these site visits and I'm seeing kids that look like me in neighborhoods that remind me of the neighborhood that I grew up in that need those resources. And as someone who did the after-school programs growing up, with someone who did the summer enrichment programs, I know the value of having access to that stuff as a way to give you an alternative way of seeing like what becomes possible when you're growing up in a hood that don't really show you a whole lot of positivity, right? Mm -hmm. So that was was my initial choosing of philanthropy. Mm -hmm. Funny Mm -hmm. thing about that, after I chose, I lost that job ended up being unemployed, spent the next three years trying to make my way back to philanthropy because I knew that's where I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. Right. And so like I was working at Macy's for a couple of years and Mm -hmm. working in their back office as their like admin ops, you know, what HR, whatever you, whatever it was, like I was a part of helping to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. But I knew that, you know, while I saw myself helping people, it's like, no, but like this, I, I want to be back in philanthropy. And so I, I, you know, after three years, I actually found it. There was an opening, right? There was a, a way made for me. Um, Come and on, so somebody. I ended up going into a PSO after that little three cent. Hmm. And it was there that I met, like, I call them my dream team. They're my homegirls. Um, they're my friends still to this day. But it was a group of Black women. Uh, we call ourselves the Marvelettes. And, you know, we all worked together at this PSO doing like professional development, conferences, learning, education, and all that good stuff. But while I was there, my boss at the time said to me, you know, if you ever want to really take philanthropy on as a career, like I'm willing to be your mentor. Wow. I'm like, you just say less. So I went into her office after she said that during like a staff, like our little team meeting. I was like, so put me in the game. So you was right. Yeah. It's like, so, so what are we doing? Cause one thing you're not going to do is give me an opportunity and like expect me to not follow up on it. Especially if I feel like, like, mm-hmm. yeah, no, I want to do that. There's no fumbling the bag. No, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. So she, um, she basically gave me the best piece of advice I still use to this day. Whatever you're going to do, make sure it has purpose mm-hmm. and intention. Mm-hmm. Who are the people that are doing the things that you want to do? Who are the people whose uh, you know expertise you respect and values you value, right? Where are mm-hmm. the spaces that they move in? Figure that out and be in those spaces with them. Mm-hmm. Figure that out and get to know those people. She's mm-hmm. like, map your network out. Who do you know? Who do you want to know? Mm-hmm. And of the people that you know, do they know the people that you want to know? If so, put your network to work. Like sure. do it in a way, you know, and And so I did that, but I tried to do it in a way that didn't feel transactional because I often feel like when people talk about like networking, it's like, I'm going to give you my business card and you're going to give me your business card and we're going to do a power lunch. No, 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 no. My way, again, is deeply relational. Who are you? What What makes you tick? 
Right. What is what is interesting to you? Like, what what do you want to do? I know what you're doing now, but what would you like to do? And I started keeping that as like a mental Rolodex. So that way, as I was meeting people, I was also making linkages to other people because it's not, again, helping people. Right. And my thing is mm-hmm. not about me. I want all of us to be free. I want capital to be liberated. I want yes. to operate from a space of abundance. So as I was meeting people, I was connecting them to other folks. Yeah. I want to pause you because you I can't skip past something because you dropped a nugget. Okay. Can you talk about the power, the power of building relationships? Because yeah. I don't think that's something that's explored enough. Especially people go to school, they send you books and they make you read all this crap, but they don't spend enough time um enforcing how much relationships, networking, getting to know people. Talk about that a little bit. I would say it makes all the difference in the world. Like, I think um, it is when you're talking about like working in a field where there's very few that look like you, one, Mm -hmm. when you're talking about working in a sector or trying to do something that hasn't been done before, two, right? You can't do it alone, right? You're going to need other folks. And, you know, one of the things that one of my mentors shared with me was, Uh, The power of a network is that sometimes people are going to be in spaces where you're not invited and you want those people to carry that, carry your name into into those spaces. Mm -hmm. And when I tell you the number of times that I've gotten a job offer, uh, a request for like, you know, could you come and speak here Mm -hmm. or, you know, oh my goodness, so excited to meet you because such and such said this. I'm Mm -hmm. like, I don't even know how you know me. But, but I'm thankful, you. right. But I'm thankful for the people that I've met along the way that continue mm-hmm. to carry my name into those rooms where I'm not. And I also make sure that I do that in every space that I'm in with my folks too, because I think the power of building relationships instead of just networking from a place that's transactional is the relationship continues to evolve and grow as you do, yeah. right? If it's transactional, we do our transaction and you, we both gone. It's over. We out in the wind. That's it. We had a moment in time but I'm at a point now in my career where I can look back and see like, dang, y'all been with me since the beginning. And now that, you know, I'm in this season of like being seen as a leader and like, oh, you're an executive director and all that stuff. Like, like, yeah, but I'm still a regular person. And yeah. I know because I've built really quality relationships with folks over the years, the people that know me and the people that I can trust. So when I'm having a hard time, when I need a recommendation, I can reach out to those folks. And, you know, in a, in my sector, like philanthropy, I think nonprofit work in general is very highly relational, but like philanthropy is such a relational field, you know, the way that uh, business is made, the way, like it's a relationship, a relationship with the organization, a relationship with the staff of the organization, like that helps make it all real. And because you never know where the person that you met today is going to be tomorrow, a week from now, two weeks from now. My belief is everybody is uh, worthy of respect, one. Mm. And so we're going to have a good positive interaction as far as you know what I try to bring into the space. Two, because three, you never know like, oh, that person that I met you know, at a conference that was only, right? Only an assistant, only an associate, couple months later, couple, like a year or two later, they run in a whole department. And now they're the person sitting across from you at the table, making some really key decisions. So for me, the power of building relationships for, uh, when thinking about networking comes from 
you never know when you're going to need people and we all need someone and everybody has something to offer that goes above and beyond whatever title that they're holding today. So why not just be kind, but why not also just take a moment and try to build with folks? Because that's also, I think, how I found like my folks, my people, my tribe, like these are people that I didn't know them, but we just kept talking to one another and, you know, years later we're friends or like, if I need a consultant, oh, well, one of my friends does consulting work. So I can invite them to like apply mm -hmm. for like this request for proposals or, you know, share information or just help folks build together. So that way as I'm building, I see my people building around me and we're building all together. That's real. Yeah. And I don't think that a lot of people get that. <laughs> this sounds so sad, but it's the truth. You'll get much further off your relationships than your education. Yeah. You definitely do. And it's the truth. Mm -hmm. You'll get much further off your relationships than your education will ever take you. So always be mindful of building great relationships. But okay, so let's continue to travel down your journey. Mm -hmm. So you've done all the things you've gotten the accolades you have arrived at the first pillar Ugh. of your success you've arrived hilarious no but um those journeys aren't cheap right there's things you have to give up along the way so what were some of the sacrifices that you had to make as you were starting mm. down your path? sacrifices i'm gonna be honest i don't know I don't know that I made sacrifices because again, my, my course was if I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, God got the rest. That's not my business. If I'm, if I'm doing what I feel like I'm being asked and called to do, the rest will make its way. I will say what I realized that I, I almost sacrificed without realizing that it was happening to me, right. Was my voice. And what I mean by that was there was a time when I was working in an organization. Um, so let me step back. I'm a pretty vocal person and I do speak my mind. You don't think, and you don't when say. It, I mean, it is what it is, right? <laughs> and when it comes to like justice and freedom and liberation, I am not going to hold my tongue about those things. Um, but what I realized is, you know, when you're in spaces that are not in alignment right and 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 don't really understand what justice and, and liberation and like they see no problem with equity like are. yeah it's yeah. like no we good we good i'm like no nah. we're not no we're not so i had a couple of instances where i had my hand slapped in in some way shape or form um by former employers like you know um you know a couple you know there's one one woman um she was really upset about like why you know, at the time when Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were running for office, she was like, well, why, you know, goodness, you know, I'm so disappointed in, in black women because, you know, we should have banded together as women and voted for Hillary. And, and she's a white woman. And I remember saying to her, like, well, you do know that we really see ourselves as black first and women second, because that's how society treats us. Right. Mm -hmm. And you would have thought that I had killed her dog the way she looked at me. And, um, mm -hmm. 
And it's, I think it's not a coincidence that a couple months later I'd lost that, that job. So I had a couple of instances where in speaking what I thought was mm. my truth, the truth, right? I was either, I either lost jobs, was moved around in departments that I didn't belong in, was wow. demoted, was not really like um, valued in the way that I felt like I deserved to be and should have been, but really, you know, felt largely misunderstood. So I got into this habit of speaking, uh, I would say corporate speak, but like um, jargon where you're saying things, but you're really not saying anything, but you're just saying words. And the words when strung together sound like they have great meaning, but they actually have no depth or substance. I had gotten caught up in that web. I'm going to touch on that. Go ahead. I'm going to touch okay. on that. I got caught up in that web because it was safe. Mm-hmm. And I was tired. <laughs> I was tired. I was tired. I was tired. I just want to keep a job. I just want to keep a job. I want to pay this rent. I want to keep this job. Um, and so I had gotten to, into a space of like jargon speaking. And I remember there was a point in time where I was so frustrated with myself. Um, I would get tongue tied because I realized that I no longer knew what I was saying. I couldn't understand the words that were coming out of my mouth because they had gone through so many layers and levels of like, is this the right message? It, can I say this? Mm-hmm. Or, oh, well, maybe I won't say this that way. Mm-hmm. I'll say it this way, right? Because I, I didn't have the formal authority, right? Vis-a-vis a title to say what I really thought. And that was really, really hard because I felt myself stuttering. I felt uncertain of myself. So like uh, insecurity, I wasn't sure if I knew the things that I knew, right? Like I questioned my intelligence, my brilliance, my value, my worth, all because I was in spaces that were not ready for the message that I, that I was bringing. Right. And so that was something that, um, it wasn't a sack, but I almost lost that. Right. And it was through leaving that job and doing some work with like coaches and like just having really good friends again that network of my people that could reaffirm like no but you're this you've always been that they're crazy you know what you're talking about the environment the situation is toxic so you know it you know um helped me to reclaim my voice and and get through that would it be what's up would it be accurate to say that in a moment of time you had to sacrifice your voice i would say no i would say in a moment of time i almost sacrificed my voice i don't know well you were talking to yourself in circles i was (laughs) but i don't so i guess like what i would say is because i'm trying to be really mindful that because i I believe that no one should have to sacrifice their voice in order to like so what i would say for me you know I didn't realize that by trying to speak the professional speak, I didn't realize that the professional speak was really, really like not saying that. BS. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just thought that maybe I didn't know because again, graphic design major in a completely different field. Maybe these people who are super smart with the MBAs and all that stuff know something that I don't know about this stuff. But the more I dig, I'm like, but it just don't make no sense. The math is not math. it doesn't add up. So, this so is, I would this, say that um, it could be easy to be swept away. So this is what yeah. I was going to say about the jargon and speak situation, right? So I'm a person, I listen for the message. 
I'm not really ever listening to all the extra. So when I hear people just talking, it kind of makes my head do circles. And it, <laughs> and I know some people may think I'm like, she must be special. I'm like, I'm really not. Cause I'll stop in the middle of the conversation mm -hmm. and be like, okay, yeah. what were you trying to say with all of that? Cause you yes. said, you said a lot of nothing. And that's, but that's something that <laughs> if you're of a certain hue, you can talk in circles and people will listen to you because they have an expectation that you know what you're saying. If you're white. Exactly. I'm Thank sorry. You. I'm again, Thank I'm at a point now where I'm a, I'm a name a thing a thing. So yes, if you're yeah. of a certain you, if you're white, white, All right. yes. Well, we're yeah. trying to we're trying to get our show picked up. But anyway, so um <laughs> if you see, see she's at that place, we are not. So um <clears throat> but I that girls. <laughs> if you I got more to say on that too, but we ain't got that tired of time today. All right, All right. Now, don't, don't get us canceled before we get started, okay? We appreciate you. All right now. Anyway. But no, if you're of a certain hue, you can talk in circles and people will just accept what you say as law because you're of the hue. But if you have a different color, a different shade, our shade, you have to actually know what you're talking about because people are listening to dissect whether you're wrong or right. Mm -hmm. And it's a very, I just wanted to add that in when you talk, started talking about people speaking in jargon, because that's something that like people really got to really pay attention to because you get in certain spaces there. If you're a black or brown person, they're looking to hear, do you know what you're talking about? Right. With a more with more of a depth than right. it would be if it was a person of another hue. So I'm just go for, go ahead. Okay. And and we, part we of the reason show. we want Okay. Show. Well, and part of the reason why that is is because white supremacy culture is one that continually undervalues the worth and knowledge and expertise of people of color such that we have to work twice, no, thrice as hard, three times as hard five. to just five, right? Whatever the I don't know, quintuple, whatever that is, five times as hard just to be seen as baseline bare minimum so we have been groomed to be over prepared in any space we're in because we know that folks are going to come at us right and are checking for our our knowledge and the reason why those who i who are white or pass as white are able to benefit from the assumption of innocence knowledge and expertise is because race plus class and if you throw in gender as well puts you in a certain position of power and authority and automatic default trust that is not afforded to people that don't look like that i'm sorry i just said that i spent a good part of my career not using my voice and i'm at a point now where the hour is late and i want my folks to be free and if we're going to talk about it we're going to talk about it so yes to what you are saying and part of the reason why it happens that way to us is because of these systems of oppression. But, right, but there is power in speaking truth to power. When I think about our ancestors who spoke truth to power, when I think about civil rights leaders who spoke truth to power, right, mm -hmm. they did that and were able to make advances so that way we have more than they did then. And so when I think about my work is I have, I guess, made it a a piece in my mind that I'm probably not going to see the kind of justice and freedom that I want to see in my lifetime, but that's okay because this is part of my leg of the race to run. Just like those that came before me ran their leg and they yeah. passed the baton. I'm running my leg and there's going to come a day when I'm passing the baton to somebody else. And so, you know, I'm leaning fully into my disruptor agitator space because again, 
long as I'm living in my purpose and doing what I feel like, you know, I'm supposed to be Mm -hmm. doing, I trust that the universe has got me. And I've seen how uh, dark and limiting and depressing it can be to not live in one's truth for the sake of being safe or comfortable Mm-hmm. Or relatable. And, or relatable. Look, if I could relate to you, you could relate to me. If I can relate to you, Tom. <laughs> and Jerry. And Jerry, <laughs> you should be able to relate to me as well. Right. Yeah. And if you can't, that's more about some internal work that maybe you need to do. And if anything, that's that's another example of like how privilege works, right? It's a privilege to not have to stretch that way. It's a privilege to have people come to you. It is effort to meet in the middle. And that's all I'm going to say. And one thing I want to point out, too, was the fact that you have mentioned the innocence that is put on people that don't look like black and brown. And so, at least my question for you is, what do you aspire to do in your industry um, with the position that you're at right now to um break past the boundaries that black and brown people really um are always in resistance with i guess what i think about as like my work now is Mm -hmm. it's the humanizing of all of us while Mm -hmm. also the checking of systems that oppress because Mm -hmm. as much as i'll go all you'll hear me like go on and on about like white dominant culture, white supremacy culture, white people. And I believe that even white folks are impacted by racism. When I And what I mean by that is you don't seem to know who you are unless you are in subject, unless you are subjugating someone else. So the totality of your identity is wrapped up in what someone else isn't, or you're not that, right? you don't know who it is that you are. So you can't even connect to you, right? And so I think there are some historical hurts and traumas that we are all carrying, right? So if racism is in the water, we all fish and swimming, we all got impacted by it in some way, shape or form. So I really see my work as like shining a light on that. Like y'all, like nobody is winning. (laughs) Like there are very, 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 very few people that are winning and like have the mass amount of wealth and all that. Um, but there are very few of us who are actually thriving in this current system. And so I think about my work in philanthropy as, um, a space of like, I guess, making way, like a way maker, um, you know, for folks who are new to the sector to come into the sector, to learn how to like navigate the sector. Uh, I think about my work in philanthropy as, you know, um, an agitator and an educator, right? Like, how can we hold ourselves accountable to like philanthropy at its at, at its its root actually means the love of people. It's like a Greek word, right? The mm-hmm. love of people, right? Um, and I actually want to touch on something that you said earlier, <coughs> T, which is that you don't see a lot of black and brown folks in philanthropy. The way we define philanthropy is different. Black folks have been philanthropists. We give to our communities. We give to our churches, like we are communal in our philanthropic practice. You know, if you take it back to the mm-hmm. motherland, susus and the idea of susus, like we've been in those spaces, but because white dominant culture only sees a thing, if it fits this very neat and tidy box, mm-hmm. 
We have been excluded from what is called philanthropic practice. But I would say people of color, inclusive of black people and uh, Latino, Latinx people um, have been philanthropists, are philanthropists, are in, in the business of philanthropy, but not in the way of like professionalized philanthropy. So I think my, my work is really to, um, to help folks see that there's a different way of doing philanthropy. And in the process, there is also a need to to do some internal investigation about like how I am showing up in this space and what are the assumptions that I have about when giving or how to give or who is worthy of giving. Um, so I think about that as kind of my work. So yeah. And to demystify it all, like, cause it doesn't have to be as complicated. Like I have, you know, it doesn't have to be that complicated. I mean, there are like, when you get into the actual practice of philanthropy, like there are legal things that you have to attend to because of the IRS and like, there are certain rules and regulations with regards to like how you give and how much you, you know, there are certain regulations there, but when I'm talking about the general spirit of the act, right? My organization giving a donation to your organization so that way you can do a, a some work or like, I think there's some more that can be done there to give from a space of abundance. And um, I think about that as my work in the sector. Okay, very dope, very dope. I'm gonna shift gears a little bit as far as like philanthropy, philanthropic organizations a lot of times provide financing to smaller nonprofits, right? Um, is there a barrier to black and brown nonprofits receiving funding versus some of the white counterparts or larger organizations? Yes. That wasn't meant to be a joke. I'm just, I'm no, asking. I'm like, you're like, is there a barrier? Yes. I mean, so studies have shown that uh, more often than not, BIPOC, black, indigenous, or people of color, BIPOC. So BIPOC led organizations tend to be under-resourced in comparison to white-led organizations. Remember what I said about relationships and the highly relational nature? Mm. Foundations give to organizations that they have relationships with. We tend to have mm. relationships with people or organizations that we're comfortable with. We tend to be most comfortable with those organizations that maybe are led by people that look like us or are doing work that we can easily understand or doesn't make us uncomfortable, right? Mm -hmm. So... So, you know, there are studies that have shown that BIPOC organizations um, are under-resourced in comparison to their white counterparts. And I will say what I have observed in recent years is now that uh, I would say the country and like our sector are having more conversations about race and racial equity more candidly than we've done in years past, I think there is more effort or commitment to supporting Black-led organizations, to supporting BIPOC minority-led organizations. More commitment, not always necessarily more dollars. And so there are organizations, and this is like the, the power of like PSOs, right? So this is kind of getting into like the sector a little bit. The power of a PSO, like we're not a foundation, right? Um, we don't make grants. But we, you know, a number of PSOs may keep track of how grants are being awarded. So there are organizations like um, 
the philanthropic response for racial equity called PRE. You know, they're they're a colleague organization of ours and they recently released a report um, called Mitchmatch. I think, you know, that talked about how there was a lot of commitment for racial equity dollars coming out of like George Floyd protests in like 2020 and all that. But while there was a lot of commitment, there weren't a lot of dollars that actually went out and matched that commitment and how, you know, there's a disparity there. So there are organizations that are keeping track of where those dollars uh, are coming in, where those commitments are Mm -hmm. and are shedding a light on it as a way to hold, you know, hold us as a sector accountable. But yeah, there are barriers. Um, So, you know, that's one. And I would also say like, just as an observation, you know, um, most nonprofits tend to be really small nonprofits. Like, you know, you have mom and pop or like someone in the community wanted to start a nonprofit to make really good uh, change in their neighborhood, but they can get swallowed up in the sea of there's so many nonprofits. There are so many nonprofits, right? And how do you get funded? And if you're talking about getting funded from a larger donor, like a, a foundation versus like, you know, doing uh neighborhood philanthropy. So like, you know, asking people for donations and stuff like that. If you're talking about trying to get into institutional philanthropy, it kind of reminds me of credit. You can't get credit if you haven't had credit. Mm-hmm. At some point in time, though, somebody's going to have to give you some credit. And so I think, you know, there are funders that uh, are willing to give like um, seed support to new organizations, you know, and help them to, you know, uh, put down roots. But, you know, there's there's a, a risk, you know, associated with that. And I would say philanthropy as a sector is really risk averse. Uh, we like to fund the things that we can count on. We don't really like to fund the unknowns. And so the trouble then is getting to a point where you are known. And because of how, uh, you know, things are set up in this country, who you know makes a big difference. And who trusts you and who's willing to take a risk on you also is related to who you know. And I would say also uh, your identity or how your work is being presented um, or the work that you're doing. So how should an organization go about creating the proper structure to be able to attain funding? That's a big question, ma'am. Just generally, Um, just generally. I would say generally. um, To putting the structure together, how should, what what should they consider when they're putting their structure together? Do they need to look for consultants? Do they need to sit down and write out a full operations plan? Like what should they be doing so they can actually be competitive for funding? I would say, you know, the answer would vary based on who you, who you ask. But since you're asking me, I would say, take a look at the resources that are already out there. Mm. Um, so I'm trying to think of organizations. There's like the Center for Nonprofit Effectiveness. Mm. Um, you know, they're one to just take a look at. Uh at one point there was an organization called the Foundation Center that told you like who was funding what. Um, but they're mm. now and they merged with a different organization and are now called Candid. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to just understand where money is coming from, going to. Um and I would say, if you're thinking about starting a nonprofit, I would say give yourself time. I mm-hmm. think that's the give yourself time. 
because the first couple of years are going to be tough getting off the ground, right? Because you're getting all your operations in order. Very few organizations are going to become nonprofits overnight and have everything that they want, like ready to go. Like I'm in the process of shifting my organization from fiscal sponsorship to its own nonprofit. I and mean, even we're not going to have everything that we need on day one, but we'll have, we'll be in a lot better position than like if we'd started completely from scratch. So I would say, give yourself time um, and don't be afraid to ask questions. I think that's the thing. Don't be afraid to ask questions and understand a multitude of ways that you could go about doing this. Because I think sometimes we start, uh, folks start nonprofits thinking there's only one way to get funding. There's only one way to, uh, you know, get resources into the organization when the reality is there's a multitude of ways. So you can go the traditional, I'm going to apply to a foundation route. But you could also go to corporations and get corporate sponsors and get cor corporate sponsorships. Mm -hmm. You could also um, if if, you know, you could also be funded by the people. You know, mm -hmm. there's uh, an organization. based organization. In, Yeah, there's an organization based in D.C. that I love called Diverse City Fund. Right. And it started it's it started by the folks in 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 the dc area and they mm -hmm. would do fundraisers and now they're at a point in time years later where they have their their first executive director and they're in the process of hiring like their second staff person but the diversity fund has been around for years doing the work with like a little bit of support from like support from the community and a little bit of support from institutional philanthropy but through that consistency and just keep doing the work keep uh, building those relationships, keep, you know, refining what it is you're doing, figuring out like what it is that you need, you can actually, you know, have some sustainability. And there are nonprofits that, you know, rely on like a board, like a board of directors uh, to help with, you know, figuring out how to put it all together. Um, that's been something that I have enjoyed doing um, just in my spare time. Like I've served on boards and I like to serve on boards of smaller nonprofits sometimes because I know that like it's a big old world out there and sometimes you just need somebody that can help you understand how to navigate it. Um, let me add a piece to this as well. Mm -hmm. A lot of times people that get into nonprofits are really, I call it the do-gooders. I'm a do-gooder myself, so I'm putting myself in that community. But as a do-gooder, there's also an understanding that it is a business. Mm -hmm. Please understand that you there's a business aspect to it. So there's nothing wrong with having a great philanthropic purpose or a great, you know, nonprofit giving purpose, but understand that you also need people that understand business. Right. To help yeah. you put together all of these things, because I've seen nonprofits that were just do-gooders, but nobody understood anything as far as organizational structure, business operations, financial, they didn't mm -hmm. understand any of that. So please understand that you still need to put together your business too. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it takes both, right? Yes. It takes both. Yes. And I think sometimes, like when I think of um, like nonprofit funders, you may have like somebody like I know the program stuff, like maybe I'm from a social working background. Mm -hmm. So I know this, mm -hmm. like I know the function of the purpose of the organization, but I don't know the function of running an organization. And that's yeah. okay, right? And that's okay, right? But you bring in people that do. Mm -hmm. And, and and this is just me, you know, and you also make sure that you have at least a baseline understanding. So that way, you know, as the leader, you can, 
you know, ask the right questions or have a sense of when something is just not where it's off, you know, where it's off and maybe it's not making sense. Um, so that way you can at least speak to some of that. But yeah, it's it's definitely a business. Um, it's a business, but it's a business that doesn't have to operate in the same way that corporations operate. And I think and we're, that's- we're, I was going to say, we're not going to go down that route because I, I was know that's, say, that's, that's a yeah, whole nother pillar of you and whole, we're not going listen, down that route. Cause I was, cause mm, it's steeped in institutional whiteness. And listen, I'm like, listen, I, I, I listen, like to say, I, I understand, I understand, yep, but that's I'm not what this interview is about. That's fine. Okay, let me keep let me keep the train on the tracks. Okay, train on the tracks. All right. Fine. I already knew where it was headed. I'm saying, if you ever want to have a conversation about liberation, liberated organizational structures, I'll let your girl need it because don't you drive this train that way either. Okay, I'm not going that way. I was going to ask you this. Y'all about to derail this train. I'm conducting this train. Y'all ain't going to do this. I'm on the train. I'm still on the train. I'm just letting you know. If we make another lap, there are a couple other say, stops that we I'm, could go at whenever you say, got I'm more just, time. I'm going to just start it. ending people's sessions. Like, uh-uh, you got to go. You got um, to leave. But now, real talk, though, um, what is, I don't know if you had tested on it already, but what is the most common mistake that you've seen from an organization uh, in your area? The it, most common mistake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, through like, through, like, your years of... Um, you know, working in different areas, like even if they're coming to you trying to get money or uh, some approaches they may have taken wrong. Like what is the most common mistake that you see? Oh, when you say, so you're talking about when organizations are seeking funding, mm-hmm. what is the common mistake that organizations that are seeking funding make? Particularly probably smaller organizations. Cause I would imagine the bigger ones have a system in place. I don't, mm, that's a, See, that's a loaded question, and here is why. I know what you're finna say. The way that organizations, foundations don't use uh, a standard. There are some foundations that use a standard uh, grants application process, but that hasn't been fully adopted across the sector. The reason why a number of foundations use a standard, uh, you know, uh, application process is because the application for applying a grant for a grant can be so detailed and nuanced that it almost doesn't, it almost isn't worth the money and effort Mm. to apply for that grant. Right. Mm -hmm. So if I'm a small nonprofit and I want to apply for just $5,000, five, $10,000, not a whole lot, five, $10,000 grant. There's all kinds of reports, reporting narratives and stuff like that, that I have to fill out. But if I'm a team of one, or maybe I'm a team of two, right. And we're doing work in the community. I don't have a grant writer. I don't Mm -hmm. have a grant writer. I don't have that, that knowledge or expertise. I now have to take time away from doing the actual work of the program to sit down and figure out how to fill out this application. So that way I can get additional support to actually do the work that I'm not doing So that way I can apply for this grant. So I think, you know, and so I I know that doesn't necessarily answer your question, but I do think, you know, because when I think about like philanthropy, I think that's one of the challenges, recognizing that as a sector, we have created some barriers for folks to apply for the funding that we need. So one of the things that we saw during the pandemic was a lot of foundations were given more general operating support. That's just different than, you know, 
I'm going to fund this program. It's like, no, I'm just going to give you money and you can decide whatever it is that you do with it. Or I'm going to simplify the grants application process. I won't make you wait as long. So we'll try to get these grants out the door sooner um, to get the resources out there. Because I think there's a recognition within philanthropy that sometimes our practices to, to mitigate risk are not necessarily mitigating risk, but they are uh, in the ways that maybe they were initially intended. What they're doing, you know, is preventing people from applying for the resources that are actually needed. Mm. And so I think there's, um, yeah. So that that would be my answer. Like, what is it that a small nonprofit, what's a common mistake? Maybe a common mistake is not asking candid questions of, you know, program officers. And even then, I don't know that that's a common mistake. Okay, well, I'm because gonna... I. I'm going to I'm going to cut in on you on this one cuz I okay. work at a nonprofit. Okay. So I, I'm going to answer this question. Okay. I, I done took 2 weeks of a project manager certification. I think I'm certified, you understand me? So now I'm going to tell you about my expertise for my 2 weeks of class. So Get us with it. What? 2 weeks, solid 2. <laughs> no. Nah, I think one of the common mistakes that I cuz I've worked in a few different spaces. I think one of the common mistakes is um, not beginning with the ending in mind. Mm. And I mean, bad. I'm not fully seeing the vision and understanding and taking the time to do proper planning of how to get to the vision, right? Because visions have to be revised over a certain you know period of time as you execute the goals, as you pass mm. those places and those marks. Mm -hmm. You begin with an idea, like, I want to end world hunger. Oh, that's phenomenal. It's a big idea. They don't have the proper goals in place. And like, okay, once we reach this milestone, we have to stretch it out. Now we got to jump to the next thing. It's the same thing as you do with proper planning for a business. That's why I said it's really important for you to make sure you build that infrastructure because you got to see the vision out, understand the steps. So from, I would say just from being, you know, little brother to the big brothers of philanthropy, proper planning, hmm. proper planning. Yeah. Planning is definitely important and a certain amount of organization and like understanding the end goal is definitely important. And there are certain things that you can't plan for. So there's also that. Here comes big brother. I already know. I, there's come. also that because like I, like I started my role as an executive director in January of 2020, not realizing that by March we were going to be in quarantine. Ask mm -hmm. me if I've led an organization during the pandemic before. I haven't. I hadn't led an organization before. And so I couldn't have planned for that. And, and, so, that, and that is understandable. However, you do have the plan as, as a leader to guide your company in a certain direction. So when you have a plan, if something jumps in front of it, you can always pivot and step around it. But if you have yes. no plan, you're constantly running in circles. Yes. And I think that comes the the that goes back to the power of like a good network. For sure. And knowing. And I would also say just kind of knowing your weaknesses or your, sure, your opportunity sure. areas, right? For sure. Because not everybody is a planner. For sure. That's not their strength. That's why you hired and them. And so, exactly. That's why, <laughs> that's why you, why you hired, hired them. Or have them on your board, <laughs> For right? Sure. So they can help For you sure. think through it yes. and recognize that, you know, your vision going back to like, yeah, ending world hunger, that's amazing. And that's going to take more than one organization to accomplish. For sure. So then getting- your piece? Get it. What is your lane? What is get specific? What is your lane? And then who are the other organizations that are going in that same direction? Yeah. But have a different lane. And how can and we how work together if necessary? So there we can be go. collaborative. There mm. you go. Yes, for sure. And I'm also going to say because sometimes philanthropy has done nonprofits a disservice in that mm. um 
the scarcity model of there are limited resources available will oftentimes force nonprofits to make sure that they are distinguishing themselves as different, better than another nonprofit that may be working in the same neighborhood, same community, with the same population, right? Because we need these dollars. And so mm -hmm. what I've observed is philanthropy is, is trying to address that. Mm -hmm. And I'm also observing like nonprofits are also being like, okay, well, we're going to go in on this together or we're going to leverage partnerships in different ways. So there's been, there mm -hmm. has been like an evolution to getting to the point where there is more collaboration and more support for collaboration. But like, you know, like anything, it takes time. For sure. um, it takes time. And I would definitely say as well, like there is sometimes I think we as people don't like change, right? Um, we've all been guilty of it in some way. And when you're approaching, when you're talking about the funding conversation, you got to get creative. You got to get creative. Put your business hat on. Some people shouldn't be in nonprofit work either. Some people should just be social entrepreneurs. Learn about what that is. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be in a nonprofit space to do good. You don't have to create a new organization either. Sometimes your organization that you want to support already exists. So see how you can get involved with them. Yeah. So, all right. So we have talked about all of the things of philanthropy. Right. We've talked about people of a certain hues, uh, white people, as y'all <laughs> y'all have so candidly. Um, it's the truth. Sorry. I mean, sorry. yeah. I, I, I'm it's like, anyway. It is what it is. <laughs> this, is what, this is what I get when I invite y'all on here. But you know what? Not y'all, because you work here, my my that one. You work here. That that one. I mean, it is what it. No, I'm just joking. We're we're really glad to have you. Um, so, yeah. what are your personal passions that are not tied to your career? Because I want mm. pe the people to get to know you a little bit, and don't you try to finesse us back into philanthropy? Either. I'm not, because I I believe in being a whole person. Like I'm a whole <laughs> human being with a whole set of interests that go outside of what I actually do on a day to day basis. I feel you. So hobbies and things I enjoy. I lift weights. So I'm into powerlifting. I've been on a hiatus for the past couple of months, but I'm itching to get back. So you mean you pick up heavy stuff and put stuff down? I sure do. All right. I sure do. Not a game. Listen, <laughs> that's right. In the gym. Getting it. Come Look, on. He got he got his don't don't play with him. He got his weights. Huh. Let's go. Huh. <laughs> Let's go. It may not be powerlifting, but it's lifting. But it's something. Yeah. Uh, so I, I like to power lift. Um, that's a hobby. I love music. Uh, so listening to music is always something I enjoy. I love art. So that graphic design major and that love of art didn't go away. Uh, glasses. Okay, listen, we, we got we to gotta give it. So all kinds of music um, depends on the mood that I'm in. Um, I like stuff that has a vibe. So I love your stuff. I have listened to it. It's actually on one of my playlists. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but like, I like, I, so um words mean a lot to me so I'm a, like a poet at heart but also like words of affirmation is like one of my core love languages so I practice self-love self-care by listening to music that is affirming to me That's so like if I'm That's in a space where I know oh I need a little extra self-love self-care I'm eternal on my playlist that are like super affirming and listen to artists that are really affirming if I need to be in my like you know boss b bag then I will turn on that playlist and listen to the F R E E E. I so my my new thing is it's huh. giving by Lotto. It's okay, giving. 
because it is. Um, so, you know, so I, I do that. Um, I have a dog who is like my bestie and she and I spend a good amount of quality time together. Um, what kind of dog you have? He's a pit bull. Shout out to the pits. Yeah, that's my baby. Um, and I mean, I guess like I'm really into self-care, wellness and well-being. So I don't know if I would call that a hobby. That's just a part of like who I am. So like deeply spiritual in that way and like self-care practices. How am I feeling? How are the folks around me feeling? That's something else I'm into in video games. Like I love playing video games and watching anime. Like I'm a okay. nerd. Now yeah. I now I gotta know what video games do you play and okay. also what, what's your favorite animes to watch? Oh, okay. So video games I play, I'm old school, so I love all things Mario. Taking it back, taking it back. Uh, I do cool. I have a Nintendo Switch, um, but I play a lot of racing games. So right now I've been playing Asphalt 9. Um, but then I also like a couple of like RPG games that are also really cerebral. So there's one game called um, Spiritfarer, which is like mm. a, a role-playing game, but you're like collecting spirits and it's all about like grief and loss, but it's also adventure. I've cried, like bald playing this video game. It's It was very therapeutic for me to play, especially like in 2020, because I had lost some loved ones and stuff like that. But mm. it... Those are some of my favorite video games, um, Mario Party, Super Smash Brothers, like mm -hmm. the original Super Mario Brothers. Like I have, like I have, yes, like yes, Mario. No, like the NES original NES Super Mario Brothers Duck Hunt. You know, it was because it was the two on the one with the cartridge. Don't play with me, clacks. Like I go old school with it, so I love those things. That's vintage, vintage. Uh, <laughs> I only, I only know the Nintendo 64 and like oh my god the, like, the Nintendo 64 yeah. before the 64 there was a Super NES which was a Super Nintendo and yeah. before the Super Nintendo there was a regular Nintendo so I grew up in a house where one of my uh, my late grandmother she had video game stations in her living room so she had one two three I think three or four TVs like the old school TVs and they sat on something the first one was your Nintendo the second one was your Super NES. The third one, I think, at one point in time became like Sega mm -hmm. Genesis, I think, or Sega Saturn. Mm -hmm. And then like, so she had, and then like when the Wii came, she had that. When N64 came, she had that. Like, so that's how I grew up. Like, we playing video games. That's what we've been to do. So as an adult, like I still go back to those old games like Dr. Mario because they remind me of my childhood. They remind me of her. And I just I just have fun playing those. Animes. I'm a big fan of My Hero Academia. Uh that's that's that, that's one of my favorites. That's definitely one of my favorites. Um, I also have been I also like Haiku. I know it's on hiatus right now. Jujutsu Kaisen is another one that I watched that I liked a lot. Um, trying to think what's out now that I've been watching. Well, My Hero Academia, because season six is out right now. So really into anime. Mm -hmm. My sister, uh, my younger sister is very much like she's all in, like <laughs> taught herself Japanese from reading wow. manga all in. So I am learning from her. Like she is, she is the guru. Mm -hmm. I'm just coming up to the mountain to get some wisdom. Hey, um, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> You see, I'm over here silent because I don't know about none of this. I know, hey, I know. I'm that still is... learning on anime too, fam. Like it's it's a, it's so much anime out there. 
Listen, I just be sitting there like, oh, okay, that's cute. She's like, you want to? Nope. But you have watched, you have watched at least an episode or two of My Hero Academia. Oh, for sure. For sure. No, I will give, I will give proper props to do. My Hero Academia holds my attention because I really like the story of the underdog. Like, it's a great story. I love, that's my life. So when I hear the stories of the underdog, I'm like, oh, I'm down. Let's watch it. You know, but um, all the rest of that stuff. No, that's fine. Y'all gotta introduce me with some good storylines. But anywho, anywho. So you've told us a lot. You've told us a, a touch about yourself, philanthropy, um, a lot of different things. This, direct, this conversation went in a lot of different directions that I wasn't expecting it to go. So thank you. I appreciate you for being open. What advice would you give to the next generation that wants to either be in philanthropy or just do-gooders, or just general advice that you would give to the next generation? Mm. Keep your integrity. Mm. Okay, talk about it. Because I'm thinking back to, like, the losing of the voice. Like, there are so many different ways that a person can get ahead, right? And I would say for those, like, whatever career you're choosing, whatever path you're embarking on, you know, Trust that you know what you know Mm -hmm. and be willing to explore the things that you don't, right? But um, keep your center, keep your, keep your focus, like keep your integrity, you know, Um, because it's so easy to just get lost in the the race of like, I just want to get ahead. I just want to get to the bag, but what good is it getting to the bag and you look around and you're by yourself because you compromise your values and your morals or what good is it in getting to the bag and then you look in the mirror and you don't even know who's looking back at you because you don't recognize yourself anymore because you shed so many aspects of the things that make you naturally you for the sake of the win i would say it's a l if you get to the point of of success and you actually don't know who you are anymore Right. So I would say like, you know, um, and I love this generation coming up because they are so dope, like just honest and just real candid in like the the analysis, the social justice analysis, the language, the the whole vibe and energy is like, I'm here and y'all going to have to just figure it out. So I would mm-hmm. say like, keep that mm-hmm. and and recognize that there is power and knowledge in those who came before you right? Mm -hmm. Like the power of intergenerational relationships is strong, right? So if you can learn from someone who's older and hear their perspective and advice and guidance, take it and adopt it and and mesh it with with what you're learning and what you know, like I find that that's that's a good place to be at. So I feel like I just said a lot, but like Keep to your core, right? Integrity over everything always, right? Build really good relationships with folks, right? Don't do not do throwaway transactional networking. Like really get to know and understand how you can build with other people and recognize that not everybody's gonna wanna build with you and that's fine, but build with the folks that are wanting to build with you. Um, use your mentors, or even if they're not like officially mentors, like, and that's another thing. There's no official mentor 
like you go about a ment like having a mentor by just being like, yo, can you give me some advice on something? Or like, if you want to formally ask, would you like to be my mentor? Like, yeah, but it's like, use your mentors, right? Or the people that uh, you respect, uh, your elders, right? Your elders have value. Your elders have perspective that, you know, sometimes may be a little outdated, but there's still some some nuggets of of good stuff there. So be willing to like seek and find those out. And don't be afraid to make mistakes because you're going to make mistakes. That's the whole point. Um, I always say like, I'm not afraid of making mistakes. I just don't want to make the same mistakes because every we, mistake I made is an opportunity for me to learn something we, new. We're going to wrap it right there because that is perfection. Storm Gray, give us all of your social media I ain't really on social media like that, but um, you can find me on TikTok at Abundantly Speaking, and I'm on Twitter as S-T-O-R-M-E-1913, because she's a Delta, um, Storm1913. We don't blame you for that. There's nothing to blame me for. You it's, better carry on before we cut this part of this. Interview. It's worthy of being ma'am, insulted. Ma'am, ma'am. I mean, wait, hold up. Okay, wait. Pause. I will be the mediator of this. What we're not finna do with the divine right. line is be div- divisive. Right, yeah. and I'm, I'm, I'm with Michael. I'm like, I, it's I just, I just, I just came in, blue just and white over here. Okay, and that, and that is fine for you. Listen, I am, I, ma'am. I we are wrapping this podcast. So secure, ma'am. We are wrapping this podcast. See, you, no, started. Just, you started. You started. This is jokes. This is jokes no we love we love everybody right here. but nah um so storm 1913 i tweet sometimes though who knows in in the wake of you know elon musk is elon musk ma'am 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 oh i'm sorry y'all are trying to yeah Yeah. all right now it's been a blessing you got a new follower just so you know thank you (laughs) all right no, I'm just joking. Storm, we appreciate you being on. Thank you so much for giving us time. You gave us mm-hmm. a lot of information and knowledge. And people, feel free to come back every Tuesday because we always bring people of quality and substance so you guys can get the information, find out some things you never heard before, listen to some stories, find out some things about some music, whatever. We're, all, we're here for the culture. Again, mm-hmm. I'm T. Hardaway. And I'm Michael Basil. And we are the Did It For The Hood podcast. Mm-hmm.